This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Exodus 19. Perhaps no work of fiction has been more influential in the imagination of children or adults over the last century than The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. Any C.S. Lewis fans in here? Yeah. Well, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Lewis tells a story of four siblings from England who discover an old wardrobe that transports them to another world called... Narnia. While a world war rages outside, these sons of Adam and daughters of Eve have many adventures in this fantasy world that I don't have time to go into right now. But there is one well-remembered scene that I would like to tell you about. The children are on their way to meet Aslan, the king of Narnia, for the very first time. When they come to the home of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, now this is not your ordinary beaver couple, these are talking, thinking, reasoning creatures. And so while they're there, uh, the two sisters, are uh, their minds are racing with questions about the king of Narnia. And I'd like to share with you their conversation with Mr. Beaver. Shall we see him? Susan said. Why? Daughter of Eve, that is what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you where you will meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Well, certainly not, he said. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the emperor beyond the sea. Aslan is a lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, my dearie. Make no mistake, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe? asked Lucy. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Over the last few weeks, we have watched the Israelites transported from a world of slavery and set into the freedom of the wilderness. They're on their way to meet with God at Mount Sinai. And on our passage today, they are ushered into the royal presence of the king. Make no mistake, their knees will be knocking as they ask the question, is God safe. And of course, our God isn't safe. You see, we can't just approach him however we choose. He's the God who is an all-consuming fire, blazing with holiness and perfection. As a matter of fact, no one can see his face and live. Yet he is so good. He is the king, I tell you. And the day will come where each of us will be ushered into the presence of the King of Kings. My question for each of us is, how are you able to approach 
the presence of a holy God. How are you able to approach the presence of a holy God? Exodus 19, verses 7 through 25, records the first official corporate worship service, a gathering of God's people. And God graciously calls His people into His holy presence and then speaks to them His holy word. And in this wonder-filled scene, Mount Sinai is transformed from a common place to a sacred space where God reveals His blazing glory as He meets with His children. It is here on this mountain of God that we learn what a holy and awesome privilege it is to be in the presence of God. There are three movements to this text. First, we'll look at the preparation of God's people. Then the revelation of God's glory. And finally, the confirmation of God's mediator. So with that in view, let me invite you to stand once more as we read together God's holy and inerrant word. Exodus 19, verses 7 to 25. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you. And may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, and look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. 
But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. First, let's look together at the preparation of God's people. Verses 7 through 15. Last week, we discovered how God was going to make this group of grumbling wanderers His treasured possession through a covenant. God had redeemed them from slavery so that they might be a kingdom of priests who served Him alone. He saved them and set them apart as a holy nation to make His name known throughout all of the nations of the world. Verses 7 and 8 tell us that Moses took what God had told him and communicated it to the people, communicated God's heart to the people. And they unanimously responded, all that God has said, we will do. Okay, so now both parties are in agreement. God is now going to come down and meet with his people. The king is coming. But before that can happen... Israel must realize that they are not capable in and of themselves to approach a holy God. Why? Because they are not a holy people. And as kind and generous as this covenant is, there is a great chasm between the holy God and these sinful people. And these verses show that Israel could not approach God any way that they saw fit, but only as God had instructed They must come to God on his terms. So this preparation that God gives Israel is one of consecration. That's the important word here, consecration. That word means to set apart, to make unique, to make holy. And while surely this consecration work is supposed to be happening inwardly, um, the consecration is seen in three outward signs. The first is they are told to wash their clothes. This is like as a boy, I'd be outside until the very last minute and mom would call me in and she'd say, wash up before you come sit at my table. Well, God's telling them to cleanse their clothes to remove the dirt and sweat that they carried on them. This requirement of cleanliness was an outward sign of an inward moral purity that God required of his people. We can't miss this. This is not about clean clothes, but clean hearts. And their clothes were just the representation of what he was calling them to inwardly. It reminds us of Exodus 3, where God beckons Moses to come near. But on his way, he says, wait, before you come close, take off your shoes. I don't want the dirt that you've carried up to come into my presence. Because where you're standing is holy ground. Well, here, the people are to wash their garments because together they are going to enter God's presence. They will all be standing on holy ground. So they're to wash their clothes. Second, they are to set limits or boundaries around the mountain that no one is supposed to go past. We see this in verse 12. While they would all stand in the presence of God, the congregation was not to come too close The Lord had established a border for the people as a form of protection so they wouldn't get too close to his blazing glory. It was too much for them. It would kill them. If they disobeyed and broke through the barrier, 
then God would break out against them. There's an idiom happening. If they break through, then God will break through and break out on them in punishment. Even if they're supposed to see one of their friends trying to break through to go to the mountain, ahead of time, they're supposed to shoot the person. This seems really intense, doesn't it? Really intense. But there's something going on here that the Bible states throughout what it teaches, that sin cannot exist in the presence of God. The psalmist sings of that in Psalm chapter 5, verse 4. And even as early as the Garden of Eden, God gave the gift of his presence to his people, and he set limits for them. Do not eat from this tree, or you will surely die. And God always keeps his word. So the second way they are to prepare is to set limits. The third way is wrapped up in verse 15, where the actual words are, do not go near a woman. And the final way, they are to practice temporary abstinence. The people are told to avoid sexual intimacy for three days until he had visited them. Now, this should not be read as if to imply that, uh, that sex was in any way considered sinful. We know from Scripture that sex is a gift from the Lord given to people to be enjoyed in the covenant context of marriage. So why is this included? I just think there's a couple of things in view. First, this is a worship service that God's inviting the people to. And I think God wants to delineate the worship of Yahweh from the worship of the false gods of all of the area, which prostituted sex as a means of religious exercise. God's saying, to worship me has nothing to do with that. The second thing, and I believe is the primary thing, is to um, God wanted the undivided attention and affection of his people for these three days as they prepared their hearts to meet with him. Paul echoes the, a very similar idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, giving Christian couples the right to abstain from the act of marriage for a short time in order for them to devote themselves to prayer. So these are the three outward forms of consecration. Wash your hands, set limits, and temporary abstinence. This all highlights the importance of meeting with God. And God's teaching his people how they're supposed to prepare themselves to worship him. That approaching God is not something to be taken casually or lightly, but rather the Lord was to be feared and honored with reverence and awe. Our call to worship this morning asked this question. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? That's the question. The answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. So, for you and me sitting here in this room, who can approach God, the holy God, with all of the sin that we carry with us? On our own, none of us. As Christians, we must understand there's only one way to approach the holy God. One way on his terms that he has set. And that one way is through the blood of Christ. There is not enough external washing that you and I could do to clean ourselves up to stand before the fiery holiness of God. 
there are not enough barriers that we could construct to protect us from the righteous wrath of God. And there's nothing we can abstain from long enough to make us acceptable to enter God's presence. We must be washed with the blood of Christ. We must be protected from God's perfect holiness by the completed work of Jesus. We must be born again by the Spirit of God. We must become something that you and I are not on our own, a holy people. You see, we have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We're able to access the presence of God all through what Jesus has done. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, says this about Christians, that you have been made holy. How? Through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. What makes us acceptable before God is not anything that we've done, but totally what Christ has done. So how can unholy people approach a holy God? Only through Christ. What preparation must we do today to come before him? Nothing in our hand we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. Jesus has done it all. The second movement of this desert liturgy is the revelation of God's glory, verses 16 through 20. And this revelation is nothing short of cosmic proportions. There's a rhythm that we see in Scripture of revelation and response. God reveals himself to his people and they respond. Well, here we find that very rhythm, revelation and response. We find that on the third appointed day, just pause. How full are those words? On the third appointed day. We arrive at the most direct revelation of God to his people in the Old Testament. Even our best imagination, even the power and skill of Marvel cannot contain what happens here. Marvel Comics, are you all familiar? Just want to make sure we're all on the same page. Our best imaginations have difficulty picturing this scene. God's descent. He doesn't live on the mountain. He's not like the gods of the peoples that are supposed to live on mountains. He's the maker of the mountains. He's not just there. He has to come down to them on the top of this mountain. And when he does, it is attended with immersive sensory experience. Look at this. The Israelites heard the resounding thunder and the sounding of the shofar. They saw explosions of lightning fill the sky. They smelled the fragrance of billowing smoke. They feel on their skin the heat of the fire. Moses loves to use poetry and hyperbole to try to describe the things that God's doing. And there's none of that here. He's not... He's not elevating what happened. He's just reporting the glorious way that God moved in the life of his people here. This is purely his eyewitness to what happened when God came near. Eventually, the whole mountain is wrapped in blankets of smoke, and it quakes at the presence of its maker. 
And at the same time, the sounding of that trumpet, for those of you who have studied music, this is like a crescendo that just gets wider and wider, louder and louder, until Moses speaks with God. And God speaks to him. Matthew Henry commented, Never was there such a sermon preached before nor since as which was here preached to the church in the wilderness. God revealed himself to his people. What a gift. And how do they respond? What kind of response is fit for this kind of revelation? Well, needless to say, they don't stand there yawning. They tremble. Imagine those with low blood sugar just go straight back, you know, just passing out in the dust. But they don't just stay there trembling. They rightly tremble in the presence of the holy God. And then Moses, like a shepherd, gathers them together, leads them outside the camp where their knees are knocking with every step as they approach the magnificent power of God on display in the sky. And then standing as one assembly, the congregation of God's people, this is the phrase that Moses uses, they went out to meet with God. What a remarkable phrase. To meet with God. They had known the power of God's hand in redeeming them. And the strength of his might in saving them. They had experienced his generosity as he fed them from the sky. And nourished them with water from the rock. But this would be an encounter so close. That it would be seared in the collective imagination of their life as the people of God throughout generations. These people would retell and rehearse what happens here at Sinai to their children and to their children's children all the way down to you and me today. Here we are talking about what happened on this mountain hundreds and hundreds of years ago. God revealed himself and his people respond. Well, how should we respond to God's revelation? God has revealed himself to us. There are three primary ways that's happened. You can look at Psalm 19 and see two of them. In creation and in his word. Another way, John 1. God has revealed himself to us in Hebrews 1. In Christ. But I want to take the middle of those three ways that God has revealed himself to us and just specifically press in on how do we respond to the word of God. The place where God reveals himself to us, Christians, Walking the earth this day is in the thunder and lightning of his word that is the voice of God ringing in our ears and a light unto our path. These words that sound forth who God is, and they are the fire by which we warm our souls. There's a lesson here for us. The people of God reply, all that you say we will do. There's a holy reverence. Now, we know the story. We know they won't always do this, right? Like Even like in a couple of days, it all starts to fall apart, as you and I know all too well. But there's this reflex, this instinct of when God speaks, we, we respond. 
We want to rightly revere and honor God's word. Guys, I know it seems pretty archaic in our day to start a worship service with God's word instead of a face-melting electric guitar solo. (laughs) And I know it seems uh, different in our time to be dismissed with the reading of God's blessing being spoken over his people as they go into the world. And I know, kids, you might get irritated that we stand in the middle of the sermon every week. We're standing again. Yeah, we're standing again. Because our hearts tremble when God speaks. And we believe that God has spoken to us in his word. We live in a culture where the holiness of God is a thing played with. And we will not play with that danger of that fire. But be a people who stand under its authority and stand at attention when he speaks who care deeply about the revelation of God. We want to respond accordingly. The final reality we see in Exodus 19 is the confirmation of God's mediator. We find this in verses 21 through 25 and also tucked away in verse 9. Um, We'll get to that in just one moment. One of the reasons the Lord gathers his people is they might understand his holiness. The second is that they might meet with their God. But there's a third reason too. That God might confirm the role of Moses as the mediator. What is a mediator? The person who stands between the holy God and his unholy people. This is Moses' function in the rest of the book of Exodus and really through the rest of his life on earth. And this aspect was outlined back in verse 9. So look, let your eye just gaze north. Look at verse 9 for a moment where God told Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. So there's a twofold thing happening in God speaking. He wants the people to know him as their God and he wants the people to believe in Moses as his messenger, as his mediator. One way the Lord confirms this in these final verses of chapter 19 is first this, Moses' proximity to the presence of God. Moses' proximity to the presence of God. Look how near he is. God repeats his earlier command of making sure the people don't break past the limits. Don't come too high the heights of the mountain. Only Moses was able to ascend the summit of it into the dark, thick, fiery presence of God. This signifies that there's uniqueness about Moses. He's the only one permitted to draw so Close. So that's the first. Proximity of presence is God telling them that Moses is the mediator. The second way that this is confirmed is when the people see the amazing sight of Moses talking with God. And then they overhear, they hear the very words of God spoken to Moses resounding in their own ears. This sacred conversation between God and Moses was to confirm in front of all of the people That Moses will be the one who hears from God, and then he will pass along God's message to the people. Who is Moses? This murdering, scared, stuttering, plan of God rejecting, chosen instrument. We've seen Moses in his weakness. And now we'll see God use Moses. He will not do it perfectly. We'll see in just a moment. 
But he will be the very prophet that God has raised up to speak to the people. God has confirmed Moses as the mediator. Now let's just pause for a moment and step back from this remarkable scene of Exodus 19. Just think with me. You might have already thought this to yourself. How amazing would it be to see something like this? How remarkable to see God's chosen man speaking to him at the mountain of God and the presence of God coming down. If I saw that, then maybe my faith wouldn't be so weak. If I saw that, maybe the presence of God would transform me from these sin patterns I I don't want to carry along anymore. Well, I have good news for you. Like gospel news. We have been taken to a better mediator than Moses. And we have arrived at a better mount than Sinai. What do you mean? Well, you see, as great as Moses was, he would not be the perfect mediator, nor was he the final mediator between God and man. He would not be the final man who would stand between God and his people. He was a type, an imperfect picture of the perfect mediator who would come. And the Lord told Moses this, even all the way back in the Sinai desert. God told him that another prophet would come. The very one that was promised to Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And this is what Moses writes in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15 to 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, that's the same place as Sinai, that's a different name for it, on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them all that I have commanded. Brothers and sisters, we could not ascend the hill of the Lord in our own strength. So God condescended to meet us at the point of our greatest need. There would be a true and better prophet from the line of Abraham the Son of David, the Son of Man, and the Son of God, Christ Himself, who the Father would place in His heart and in His ear all that He had to to reveal to us. The Scriptures are full of the teachings of Jesus Christ, the true and better prophet, so that we might not live in darkness but know God. We would know Him. God, Emmanuel, came down into our humanity, even descending into the depth of our death. And Christ ascended the hill of the Lord, even to the heights of resurrection. And he carried on us with every step on his back. We were brought from death to life. Christ perfectly obeyed the law of God, perfectly kept the covenant of God in our place so that we might stand on the mountain of blessing in the presence of God forever. We have a better mediator than Moses. 
And as amazing as what it is we see at Mount Sinai, you and I have been welcomed into an even more remarkable place. I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. If you're new to the Bible, it's just toward the very back of it. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 24. And I want you to listen how the writer of Hebrews compares this experience at Sinai, Exodus 19, to the experience you and I have known in Jesus. Starting in verse 18, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given them. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. That's all talking about Exodus 19. Starting verse 22, now we go to Christ. But you have come to Mount Zion. Now that is Jerusalem. Uh, what the writer of Hebrews is using there is the city, Mount Zion, the place of Jerusalem as a metaphor for what you and I have been given in Jesus now. Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Able. In Christ, we have been given a better mediator. In Christ, we have been given a better covenant. In Christ, taken to a better mountain, to the eternal city of God, where you and I are welcomed into the presence of God forever through endless ages, where we will know the joy of Jesus because of his once and for all mediation. So what kind of response there's a passage like Exodus 19 and Hebrews chapter 12 call us to. I emailed it to you last night, my letter. The words of John Newton, I think, say it so perfectly. What are we to do then? Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. And he has washed us with his blood. And he has brought us near to God. Let's praise him together. Jesus, we give you glory and honor and praise. All blessing and dominion are yours because of what you have done for us. An unholy people who've been made holy through your blood that was shed. You have prepared us to stand in the presence of God by grace alone, through faith alone. You have revealed yourself to us. And you have provided for us everything that we need to meet with God and to enjoy the benefits that are ours because of the great covenant that you've made with us, your people. 
We give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org. 